Antic Heart, Chapter 2. yells don't think I'm going to look after a dog because I won't she stands there glowering at me her face red with indignation she is a small woman thin and wiry I had been bigger than her since I was 12 and now I tower over her I sigh when I look at her worried angry face she is the only person in the world that I love and I would give my life for her but she has a way of making me feel uncomfortable, not least when she reminds me of all the compromises I have made and the secrets I have kept. But a dog is not a secret, and I tell her it need not be a problem. Lady Mountjoy gave me a brooch to sell to pay for meat for him, I say. He won't cost you anything. I put the brooch into the drawer of the side table. He's not going to cost me anything because I won't be looking after him. I know these aristocrats like their dogs, but to my mind, they belong in the kennel, not in the house. She is such an angry, earnest little person, and yet she is often proved right. She has an honesty about her that I lack. I don't know why I don't take after either of my parents. My father had been an upright, honest man. A country gentleman, more interested in his farm than national politics. Yet loyalty was important to him. And when King Charles I had raised his standard at Nottingham, he had answered the call to arms. Without him to run the farm, and with a shortage of labourers to work the fields, my mother had struggled. As a child of ten... I had tried to help her, to make her happy, but I couldn't take the place of my father. She missed him desperately and longed to be near him during dangerous times. After a couple of years, she gave up the farm, sold it and used the money to follow him around the country, staying at inns near to where the royal forces were stationed. He visited us regularly and she was happier. I looked forward to his visits and I enjoyed the rough and tumble of playing with him. I can remember the last time we saw him. He rode over to our inn and we three sat around a table drinking small ale. Things are going badly, he told my mother. The king's men are losing and I may not survive the next battle. My mother, ever anxious, let out a cry and he reached over and touched her hand. Dearest, I know it distresses you, but we must face this possibility. If I should be lost in battle, you must both make your way to France. There is enough money left from the sale of the farm for your passage and to support you for the next few years. 
My mother was by now weeping, mopping at her face with her handkerchief. My father patted her again on her shoulder, but I could tell he was finding this very difficult. He gestured to me. You must help your mother in every way you can. Try to find some respectable work if I am gone and be sure to marry money. The tears welled up in my eyes, but I ignored them. From that day on, I learned to suppress my own childish emotions and take care of my mother. I put my trust in you, my father said. Swear to me by almighty God that you will not let me down. I swear, father, I swear, I will serve my mother and follow your wishes until the day I die. So that was it. My father knew that my mother was of an anxious disposition, and so he had made me promise if he was gone, I was to become the adult in the family, the head of the household. It was a heavy responsibility for a child, and it has weighed on me ever since. I remember our last afternoon together, walking down by the river, my parents arm in arm, me following on behind them, picking blades of grass to chew. My father would turn back every now and then and tell me the name of a bird or a tree. See up there, he said, that is a kestrel flying round in circles looking for its prey. I remembered that. It seemed to me that the best thing to be was a kestrel, flying free and unafraid. Below you would be the whole world, and you could choose whatever opportunity that presented itself to you. That is how I have tried to be, fly free and swoop when I see easy pickings. It is the only way we have survived, my mother and I. When she heard of my father's death, she was strangely quiet and shocked. I had expected her to weep, but instead she withdrew into herself, not grieving, not making decisions, barely eating. It was me that had to decide that we would flee to France, me that hired horses and then a passage across the channel, me that found lodgings and learnt French, I became the man of the house. Later, my mother had said that I didn't need to do that, that she would have managed. But I knew that wasn't true. And for all her raging about my choice, how godless it was, how she was ashamed, she had to admit that I had kept my vow to my father. I had looked after her. Now she's refusing to look after the dog. Well, I suppose I will have to take him with me and maybe lose him on the way to Calais. I can tell Lady Mountjoy he'd run away. Today, though, I can't deny his sweetness. I pick him up and stroke his rounded little tummy. He stretches in ecstasy and his black eyes beam at me. Just a few days, girl, don't forget that, I say to him, tickling his belly. Girl, asked my mother, don't go having a bitch. She'll be in whelp by spring. No, mother, he's a boy. I hold him out to her so she could see his baby's penis. So why are you calling him girl, she asks. I smile at her and suddenly she smiles back. She understands. 
It's just a joke, mother, I say, dropping a kiss on the top of her head. I share my supper with girl, who eats the sausages my mother has cooked with gusto. We finish them off with a hunk of bread. My mother fetches a bucket of water from the fountain and I carefully pour a little into a wooden bowl for him. He dips his head and drinks eagerly, spraying water over his face and onto the floor. My mother purses her lips when she sees him. I won't take responsibility for cleaning up after him. That's your job and he sleeps with you, not in my parlour. I pick him up and tell my mother not to worry. I fashion a small collar out of an old belt of mine and tie a piece of rope around it. Now I could control him, or so I fondly imagine. Right, you sleep there. I sit down on the bed and gesture to a corner of the room. He wags his tail and puts his paws on my knees. I push him down. No, over there. He looks at the corner for a moment and then returns to me, his tail circling the smoky air. His black eyes look at me as if I am the most delightful companion in the world. He tries to flex his black back legs to jump up, but he is just too small. Looking crestfallen, he whimpers. I pick him up and lay him beside me on the bed. Training can wait until tomorrow, and I'm planning to lose him anyway, so it doesn't really matter. It's six o'clock in the morning when we leave the house the next day. The streets are dark and slippery with ice. I pull girl behind me, skittering on the frozen ground. I wear my black woolen coat with my gallant's feathered hat and my high leather boots. But I feel the want of a cloak and swear that I will buy a new one in London. I have a small leather bag slung across one shoulder, and I carry a couple of saddlebags with changes of clothes, some bread and some spiced sausage for the journey. My instructions are to come to the right bank side of the Pont-Marie, where one of Edward Hyde's servants will meet me with a horse and money for the journey. As I walk there, I can see the city beginning to stir, Candlelight shines from the windows of the shops preparing for the day ahead. A few wagons roll along the street, bringing wine from Montmartre to wash down Parisian breakfasts. I shiver, thinking I could do with a warming glass of spiced wine before my journey, but the inns are not yet open. As I come up to the bridge, I see a man waiting, huddled in a large hooded cloak. He holds two horses by the reins, their cloudy breath visible against the darkness. He looks at me and then, doubtfully, at girl. Monsieur? he queries, unsure of my identity. I tell him that I am Henry Nash and that we have a good friend in common. And who might that be, monsieur? he asks, unsure of me. Why, it is Monsieur Lavocat. Of Dinton, I tell him, using Hyde's lawyer's title and his place of birth, as I had been instructed. Very well, monsieur. I am Jean, and I will accompany you to Calais. Take your horse. He holds out the reins of the handsome bay to me. 
I scoop girl into my arms and put him in my leather bag, slung across one shoulder. Then I load the horse with my saddlebags and jump up and swing myself into the saddle. Jean jumps upon his horse, unimpeded by baggage, and tells me to follow him. We make a for Beauvais, he says, leading the way. We trot through the city, by now opening up for the day. We pass a cafe where fashionable people have adopted the new drink of coffee and claim they couldn't get through a morning without it. The inns, where most ordinary people go, are opening their doors, landlords sweeping the floor and lighting large fires to fight the cold. I suggest to Jean that we stop for a drink of wine to fortify us for the journey, but he shakes his head. We have to get to Beauvais by nightfall, he says. You can drink then. He is not the most talkative of companions, although I try to get into a conversation with him. By the time we leave Paris, I've learnt that he sometimes worked for Monsieur Hyde, and he disliked winter mornings. It is going to be a long journey. As we ride into the countryside, the sun is rising. The land on either side of us is white with a heavy frost, sparkling pink and gold in the dawn light. We see small farms where pigs root and chickens peck at the ground. Sometimes we see a good wife feeding her chickens, searching for eggs for her family. Occasionally we see a farmer on a horse, pulling a cart full of hay up to the higher ground. Another ordinary day is starting, with everyone knowing what they are expected to do and at what time of day. That is, everyone except me. All I know is that we are headed for Calais and a passage to England. I expect our journey will take around three days, but that is the extent of my knowledge. Whenever I ask Jean, he mutters something like, I will find out in good time. Girl, on the other hand, is much more communicative. Often I can hear him snuffling like a contented baby. He doesn't bark, but every now and then he whimpers, looks up at me and then cuddles up to my chest. I admit, I am grateful for the warmth of his little body against mine. I'm almost regretting my decision to lose him later on. We stop at a roadside inn for something to eat. Girl comes in with us and shares my sausage and bread. Jean looks on, his eyebrows raised. Monsieur Hyde said nothing about a dog, he says, looking down at Girl who is playing with the buckles on his shoes. A present from a woman, I say, and he shrugs his shoulders. Maybe he is disappointed, because lapdogs and spying don't naturally go together. I'm going to let him go here, I say. I'm sure someone from the village will want a good hunting poodle. Jean looks unconvinced, but I refuse to let that put me off. I take Girl on his lead out onto the grass in the centre of the village. There are some market stalls nearby and people are buying bread, wine and vegetables. I let go of G Girl's lead and call over to them. See here, a fine dog, bred for hunting. He is free to anyone who wants him. The villagers look 
unenthusiastic. He's but a baby, one of the men says. Would cost a fortune to get him reared and trained. And it's only the Aristos who go hunting round here. He's the grandson of Prince Rupert's dog, I say desperately. He has royal connections. What? That German pirate? Don't want anything to do with him, a woman calls out. I look at girl. Sorry, lad, you're on your own, I say, and make to walk off towards our horses. He follows me, wagging his tail. I pick him up and put him back on the grass. Don't leave the pup there, the woman calls out. He'll bother the chickens. I look down at girl. He was sitting down, gazing up at me, his head cocked to one side. I make to walk away, and he immediately follows proudly, as if he knows he is doing the right thing. Take your damned Prince Rupert's dog with you, the man calls out. He's not welcome here. I sigh and pick girl up. Immediately, he snuggles against me. Don't get excited, I muttered. There's always tomorrow to find you another home. We carry on through the winter's landscape as the sun sets, past the sleeping byres and farms, our horses' hooves, the only sound on the frosty ground. We have covered much ground in a day, and I am tired. At last, we see the dim lights of a settlement. As we draw nearer, we can hear people, horses, the sound of civilization. Jean turns to me and smiles for the first time that day. He says one word. Beauvais. He finds an inn where he is known and arranges stabling for our horses. Soon we are sitting at a table beside a glowing fire with large goblets of the local wine in front of us. We eat well a rabbit stew and fresh bread, and then the three of us retire to bed. I am dismayed to find I am sharing a four-poster bed with Jean. Can we not sleep separately? I ask him. I'm already having to have girl in my bed. I didn't want a man I barely know. Do you think Monsieur Hyde is made of money? He asks fiercely. He is paying for your transport to Calais and the passage to England. That is all. And so his household will have no meat this month. Affairs are desperate in the English king's court. No one has any money. Girl jumps up at him and Jean gives the dog a half-hearted kick. I retrieve the puppy and hold him close. So what will I do for money when I'm in England? I ask. Jean throws his arms up in the air. That, mon cher, is what you have to work out for yourself, he says. It is the reason you were chosen for this task, I believe. It's dark in our room. I lie awake, hearing Jean snoring beside me and girl snuffling against my chest. I envy them both their ability to sleep so soundly. I curse myself for this foolishness. How could I have imagined that this task, carried out for the king, would be funded by him? 
Like all of Paris, I know he is living off his mother, the Dowager Queen Henrietta Maria. As the aunt of Louis Fourteenth, she is entitled to a pension from France, but it isn't huge. And King Charles has so many debts that whenever he gets some money, he has to pay off his most pressing creditors. I should never have accepted the mission, I know. But, but, if I am successful and if we raise an army and King Charles regains his throne, then my position in life will be assured. But there are far too many ifs in that thought and I'm not comfortable. If only I had not left the brooch that Lady Mountjoy gave me at my mother's house, that would have fetched enough to keep me for the next few weeks. As it is, I have a few coins in my pouch, and that will have to be enough until I can find a rich patroness to pay for my expenses. I have no doubt that I will, whether it is my handsome face or my exquisite manners. Older women fall into my lap like apples in September. But the problem is, I have to raise far more than my living expenses. I have to return to Paris with a treasure box full of jewels. Anything else will be a failure. And now I am set to return to an England where if my mission is discovered, I will certainly be arrested and maybe even executed. We have a couple of days more on the road, pausing at Amiens and then going on to Calais. There are many other travellers, all making their way to the port. France does not recognise the parliamentary regime in England, but that doesn't stop people constantly travelling between the two countries, countries whose destinies have been entwined for nearly 600 years. Calais is busy bustling with traders, seafarers and people fleeing from the authorities in one direction or another. I remember the last time I was in Calais, 12 years ago, guiding my mother off the ship and along the street. We found lodgings in the poorer part of town. They weren't clean and my mother was upset, I could tell. I decided then I had to work to keep her in good and respectable conditions. I remember going around the inns asking if anyone was going to Paris. If they said they were, I would try to persuade them that they really needed another page boy. I could read and write English very well and my mathematics was good. The first inn was full of people, mainly men, but a few families eating together. The candles burned brightly and the rooms buzzed with talk and laughter. People were happy to be back in France after their trips to England. "'Tis all Bibles and sermons now, and no singing and making merry,' one man said to the group he was sitting with. "'I told my brother he should come out here, but he doesn't want to leave his lands behind. "'Much good they do him when he cannot even dance on Christmas Day.' I asked him if he needed a page to take with him to Paris." I'm a hard worker and I'm from a good family, I assured him, but he waved me away. What would I do with you, boy? I never entertain. I went from table to table, but not one of the gentlemen I approached was interested. One shook his head and told me he didn't want to take on another mouth to feed. Another didn't want his wife and daughters mixing with a lad from nowhere. 
Others just laughed at my English accent and my dusty clothes. It was the same in the two other inns I tried. After an hour, I gave up and, feeling disheartened, trudged slowly back towards my lodgings. Before I had got far, I heard a voice behind me. Garçon, come here! I turned round and saw two women, one of around my mother's age and one who was much younger. The middle-aged woman beckoned to me. You are looking for position, young man? I heard you in the inn back there. Yes, I am, madame. I am newly arrived from England and need to find employment urgently. I will admit my voice was a bit shaky and I was trying to hold back tears. My name is Madame Marchon, and this is my daughter-in-law Claire. And you are? My name is Henry Nash, madam, I said, and bowed to them both. You are very well spoken, sir, Madame Marchand said, and your manners are good. I am willing to take you as a servant, not a page. I have no use for such notions. But we are cloth merchants, and we need a good lad to serve our customers, entertain them, and persuade them to buy. If you can be ready tomorrow morning, I will take you. Madam, I am so willing to work. I will have to bring my mother with me. She will not trouble you. I shall find her a room. Can she sew? Madame Marchand asked. Yes, of course. She makes all my clothes, I said. Madame Marchand looked at my doublet. Though dusty, it was well cut and finished to a high standard. Very well. She can come too. You can both live in our Paris house, above the shop. Is that acceptable to you? Yes, indeed, madame. Thank you very much. I bowed again deeply. We shall meet you here at nine o'clock tomorrow. You can both come in our coach with us. Don't be late. And that is how my mother and I started work working for the Marchand. They were wealthy and had a fine house on the right bank of the Seine, twenty minutes walk from their shop. Monsieur Marchand had died the previous year, leaving his wife and son to run the family business. But the son, Jacques Marchand, was a wastrel who spent most of his time drinking and gambling, leaving his mother and his wife to run the business. Fortunately, they were clever, tough women, and they made a success of it. And although they were strict, they were kind. They gave me one day a week off to attend school and made sure I was well fed and clothed. And for, as for my mother, sensing her anxiety, they were gentle with her. It was the best possible introduction to Paris for both of us. And tomorrow I am going back to the England that I had fled seven years ago. Now we are in Calais, it seems real at last. We are just 22 miles away. It takes Jean and I a while before we find a room for the night. We try several inns before we find one near the docks where there is some space. I am resigned by now to sharing with Jean and comfort myself with the thought that this is the last night we will have to do this. To my surprise, I sleep long and only wake when girl starts whimpering beside me. 
I pick him up and rush him outside where he relieves himself. Then I go back to the room and wash myself, putting the bowl of water down for girl when I finish. Jean is already dressed and waiting for me. It is time for us to part, he says. I will take you to the ship and then bid you farewell. Take this. He pulls a document out from under his doublet. When you get to Dover, you must find your contact. His name is Thomas Lewis. He is a merchant and he lives in the better part of Dover. He will help you. Give him this paper. On no account must anyone else see it. Do you understand? I nod impatiently. One of the first lessons I have learned over the last few years is to keep secrets, no matter how much I am tempted to tell others. We trot up to the dockside, where there is a passenger sloop waiting. It is one of the ships that regularly goes between Calais and Dover. Beside it, I am relieved to see a couple of pinnace boats, small craft equipped with cannons to ward off pirates. I know that many pirates are supporters of King Charles, but of course they wouldn't know that I was on board. We bring our horses to a standstill and both dismount. I take my saddlebags and check that I have girls securely strapped in the bag that is slung across my shoulder. I give Jean the reins of my horse and he takes it with his horse and tethers both animals to a post. Be on your way, he says, and then unexpectedly throws his arms around me. Bon chance, he mutters, and pushes me towards the gangplank of the waiting ship. A sailor stands nearby. I give him my name. He nods and ushers me on board. I have a small cabin, which I share with three other men. It is smelly already, and I decide that I would prefer to spend as much time as possible on deck, where the air is sweet and salty. I climb up to the deck and put Girl down, holding his lead tightly. He takes a look around him and starts wagging his tail furiously. After days of being constrained, he loves walking around the ship, jumping up to say hello to the seamen, who pet him and give him some of the ship's biscuits. We enjoy the gentle dip of the waves, looking out at the rapidly disappearing French coastline. We see another ship on the horizon, and the crew hurry me down to the cabin. They tell me it is a privateer. All passengers must get below decks. I hurry down to the cabin and sit on my pallet, holding girl tightly. The other men are talking quietly amongst themselves, drinking wine to settle their stomachs. We hear a sudden boom, and we all sit up, straining to hear what is going on. One man looks out of the porthole. They're firing from the pinnacle, he says. Can't see the pirates from here. Girl starts to whimper, and I hold him close. It would be ironic indeed if my mission fails because I've been killed by royalists supporting pirates. I shut my eyes and pray silently. I'm not afraid of being killed in a sword fight, but to go down in this sweaty cabin, surrounded by men swearing and farting, is not an end I wish upon myself. 
There are more loud explosions and the ship shudders, throwing us off the beds. I pick myself up, girl clinging on to my doublet and make for the door. I'm not staying in here, I say. I'd rather fight than drown. I put girl down and hope he will stay in the cabin, but he is determined to follow me. He takes after his grandfather, who had followed Prince Rupert into battle. I put my hand on my sword and tighten my grip. If we are boarded, I will be ready. As a boy, I had learnt swordmanship, and very recently I had had a slight altercation with a jealous husband. He had yielded, and I had assured him that his wife's honour had remained intact. An epée at his throat had helped him to see sense. On the deck, the air is full of smoke, and I can just about make out the pirate ship very close to our side. I can see the men swarming over the pinnacles, loading and firing the cannons. Suddenly, there is an immense explosion, and a gaping hole opens in the side of the pirate ship. Almost immediately, I can hear men screaming. Then I see bodies tumbling out of the privateer into the water, some of them struggling to swim, others already dead. Our ship starts to sail away, leaving behind the stricken privateer. Irretrievably damaged, it is already starting to sink into the dark seas. As we make our way out across the channel, we can still hear faint cries from the sinking ship. My stomach is in knots. What a way to die, swallowed up by the cold January waves. I do not like to kill, though I have done so once before. But it disgusts me, the thought of ending a life. I am like a woman in that, I know. But I do not let myself mourn unduly. These are dangerous times we live in, and I cannot afford pity. The wind is behind our sails, and we make good speed towards England. I go below deck to fetch some bread from my bag. In the cabin, one man is retching into a back bucket and another is clutching his stomach. I fetch bread and a slab of cheese from my saddlebags and go above deck again with girl. Crouching down near the side of the ship, I give girl some bread. He is ravenous and eats the bread quickly, then starts whimpering for some cheese. I break a little off and give it to him, but I keep the rest of the bread for myself and wash it down with a flask of wine. I pace the deck up and down, girl following me, his tail wagging, bouncing along cheerfully. The crew are working normally again, and a sense of optimism sweeps across them, with many of them whistling and singing. Towards late afternoon, I make out the white cliffs of Dover, and my heart lifts. My first time back in England for seven years. As the ship noses its way into port, I start to feel excited. Though I know the dangers, I am exhilarated by the challenge I face. If I can succeed, the future stretches ahead of me invitingly.